Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso-Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining me today for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode is with a, a friend that and a colleague that I have worked with now for, well, longer than I'd probably like to uh, mention and, and longer than I can probably remember. But David Drucker from the Washington Examiner is with me today. Uh, David Drucker, thanks so much for being with me. Yeah, good to be here, Lisa. Thanks. So, uh, Dave, one of the things I love to get into a little bit is how um, how it is my guests got into journalism. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I kind of joke now that I didn't really know what I was doing, or I probably wouldn't have bothered with it. But, <laughs> um, you know, I spent most of my 20s working in sales and marketing, and I was basically running a small division of a family owned business that my parents started and owned and oversaw. And when I was in my late teen, I guess early twenties, I fashioned myself an entrepreneur. So I thought I would go into the sort of industry that I'd grown up in, which was like, which was the window covering industry from the whole wholesale aspect of it, from the wholesale perspective where my fam, my parents, when I was growing up, owned various manufacturing uh, companies, and they would manufacture different kinds of window coverings, mini blinds, mm-hmm. um, things like that, vertical blinds, and sell them to retailers. Mm. So we were never retailers ourselves. We didn't deal with the general public, but we would sell these. Uh, we manufacture and sell to big retailers all over the country, and and it's it's. One thing led to another, and what my parents ended up ha- owning by the time I was in college, well, I'd like to say in college the first time, was a sales and marketing firm that contracted with manufacturers to sell their products to retailers with whom they had established uh, relationships over like a 20 to 40 year period, depending on whether you're counting my father's time in the industry before my mother and then their combined time in the industry once they were in business together. Mm -hmm. Long story short, I wanted to be in business. I wanted to do my own thing. So I did it and I started something. I had no startup capital. I did not know what I was doing at all. Mm -hmm. And I was eventually consumed or subsumed or I'm looking for the right word here. I'm a writer. I'm supposed to know this, but (laughs) whatever. My parents took me over basically Mm -hmm. and covered debt for product that I had run up. Now, this wasn't debt. Like I wasn't in any sort of criminal trouble. Right. I just ha- owed bills to suppliers and mm-hmm. I was having a hard time paying them. And my parents told the suppliers, we'll cover everything, not to worry about it. And they did. And in exchange, I ended up working for them and then running various aspects of the business that they had uh, assembled. Mm-hmm. And it took me about seven years uh, that were not very profitable for me personally. 
my parents were doing great. I was not from a financial aspect, but about seven years into this whole journey, I finally figured out what I was doing. Mm. And I fi- and I knew finally that if I was going to, to run a company, any company for a living, particularly in the window covering industry, but any industry, I finally had an idea of what to do to make money and run a successful company. And it was about that time that I realized I didn't actually want to spend 40 years of my life doing that. I used to spend most of my time imagining I would make enough money to do something else that sounded fun. Mm -hmm. And it was around this time that I started freelancing as a writer because I just needed something to do. I needed a hobby. I typically worked 80 hour weeks. I didn't really have much of a life. Um, I mean, I had a bit of a social life, but I didn't really have much of an outlet and I started freelancing and I discovered that I really liked to write. So after putting some thought into it for about a year, I decided I would leave the family business, leave business altogether and become a writer. Mm. And so I went back to school. I went to UCLA to finish my degree, which I had never finished and started writing for the daily Bruin, which is the college newspaper there. Mm -hmm. And I decided I would write about politics because it's something that I cared about and sort of had treated like a hobby over the years. And I thought I might be decent at it. And in doing that, I decided that that was the kind of thing I would write for a living because I thought I could find a job in a newspaper. Because mm-hmm. when I considered writing for a living, you know, you're, you got to find somebody to pay you. And I thought about being a freelance writer, but I worried about not having an office to go to and I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to make this. I was a traditionalist in this way. It's like, you need to go to work every day and you need a paycheck. Right. And even though I had actually been in sales such that I was used to irregular paychecks and used to working on commission or making money on commission, I didn't want to be a guy in a one room in a studio apartment the rest of my life who made enough money to support himself, but didn't really have a career. And I thought, well, I could get a job as a newspaper and reporters have careers. It's like a, it's a, it's a defined career. Mm -hmm. And I thought that if I never amount to anything, if I write politics every day of my life, at least it'll be fun. Hence, Here's where I am. I decided I would go to Washington and become a national political reporter. So I went from earning my history degree at UCLA to a small suburban daily 60 miles east of downtown LA Mm -hmm. to their Sacramento bureau to covering the recall that elected Arnold Schwarzenegger governor to getting a job at Roll Call when Roll Call, the newspaper was still much more important than it is today, even though there are still a lot of great writers and reporters at that publication. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's my backstory. It was a sort of accidental second career. So I actually chose this misery. It it didn't just happen. (laughs) Well, we, and we met when you were at roll call um, and because somehow you found yourself covering New Jersey and someone said, well, you should probably talk to Lisa because she spent a little bit of time there in the political world. You know, this actually, came up in conversation last night because somebody I was hanging out with was mentioning that Tom Kane Jr. is giving it another shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's running for Congress in 2022. And one of the first sort of races that I ever covered was his 2006 Senate race against Bob Menendez. Yeah. Uh, it was an open seat. And I remember driving up and down New Jersey um, uh, for a couple of days 
uh, more than once, actually, that cycle mm-hmm. uh, to cover that race. It's always it's always election season in New Jersey, <laughs> whether it's federal or state. It's every other year. Um, it's it, it, there's never a time when there is not something happening here political. Um, in fact, I am recording today uh, the podcast from the Jersey Shore, so uh, it makes it all that sweeter for me to be talking to you about my my home state. But so. Um, what did your family, this this entrepreneurial family of yours, think about this switch to covering politics and being a journalist? Were they confounded by it? Were they excited about it? How did they? Because it's, you know, fundamentally, they they come from an entrepreneurial side of the the world. What did they think about this switch to this line of work? Well, um, you know, my mom was supportive. Moms tend to be supportive. Mm-hmm. My father was worried I wouldn't make a living, and. Um, <laughs> I guess you can't blame him for that. I think he was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to take over the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was some disappointment there and a little concern. And it's not something that he understood. Um, I remember when I finally arrived in D.C. five years after I made this decision and I was starting to do some TV hits, hits here and there. And he kept pestering me and asking me if I was getting paid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time I arrived in D.C., uh, cable news hits were not something that paid unless you were under contract. Right. And that, that's a whole other discussion as to mm-hmm. how, how and why you may find yourself under contract, but, but how and why you're not necessarily going to ever be under contract. I, I have been under contract before, but I'm not under contract currently. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he had a sort of difficult time understanding the sort of that aspect of it. But I mean, ultimately my parents were supportive. I mean, there was nothing I could do about it. First of all. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think they may have been sort of more, um, mystified by the fact that I was really excited to move to Washington and did not want to live in California. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, this afflicts many Californians because <laughs> they can't understand why anybody would want to live anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And look, I came to Washington before the city was really uh, the food scene it has become and the cultural yeah. scene it has become. So it's that's involved. been a happy accident for me because, mm-hmm. you know, I can now enjoy many of the cultural aspects of life in Southern California that I um, here that mm-hmm. I couldn't when I first moved here including going to baseball games. No kidding. It's like, um, it's the whole city has had a renaissance. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think it was just more, I think it was more about that. You know, I think it was, look, I worked for my parents as a career, so to speak, until I was about 27, 28 years old, which mm-hmm. may have been around the time that I told them that, because I gave them like a year I remember I didn't just give them two weeks notice because it's a, you know, it's a family and it's a family run business. Of course. I gave them a year notice. Mm -hmm. I made this decision and then I said, look, I'm not going to disappear in a couple of weeks. This is going to be something that's going to take me a little while to put into effect. So I'm, but I'm telling you now, so you have plenty of time to figure out what to do. Um, so, you know, over time, I think they, they understood it and eventually everything was fine. Of course, um, but of yeah, course. In the, you know, in the beginning, mm-hmm. but I guess what I was saying is I think because it happened so late, um, I think that's what made it a little bit more 
jarring to them. You know, when you're, I mean, I'm a parent now and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, kids will have their own ideas about what they want to do. I think if this is something that I had changed my mind about from age 18 to 19 or 19 to 20, it would have been less of a thing. Yes. Um, You know, this happened as a lot of my friends in their late twenties were starting to hit that next stride in their chosen career uh, that included both, you know, financially and just professionally, I was starting over. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that that was a part of what made it jarring. Right. Well, luckily it's been tremendous success and you have done some tremendous things. And I'm sure that by now uh, all that has, uh, I I only ask because I know that uh, my own parents were confounded by the fact that I changed jobs every two years and we all know that that's sort of how the, the, the business goes when you work in politics. Uh, but I'm pretty sure my folks were convinced that I couldn't hold down a job and that every two years I needed to move along because I had completely blown it with the one that I had. So <laughs> um, anyway, so we, and then that comes from a, you know, a, a, a family that where my mother was a teacher for 35 years and my father worked for the federal government for 35 years and they had successful careers, but they were careers that happened within a, a construct that was, you know, there was continuity and there was, you know, sort of a thread of, of you know, going and staying and evolving and, and um, changing in those roles. Whereas, you know, here we are jumping all around and they were quite concerned. Um, but Dave, tell me a little bit now. So you have been at the Washington Examiner for a while, and you do uh, quite a bit of work uh, outside of that. You do some work for for Vanity Fair and some other publications. You've written a book. Tell me a little bit about um, about what you're doing today. What are you covering for the Examiner? And then tell me a little bit about um, what it's like to to write a book and 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 what the book's all about. Um, so I, when I came to the Examiner, they brought me on board really because of my sourcing in Congress, and mm-hmm. I had spent a lot of time covering the Senate and a little bit of the House, uh, but I was really pretty well sourced on Capitol Hill. Over time, I shifted uh, into campaigns as more of a full-time vocation. Mm-hmm. I had always covered the campaign, but would often shift back and forth between the House and Senate and the campaign trail as the political calendar dictated. Um, given that campaigns don't really end and I just really love campaigns, I tend to do mostly that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just returned from New Hampshire where I spent a little time with Governor Chris Sununu, who's the Republican that Republicans in Washington are hoping will challenge Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan in 2022. Mm-hmm. And so I followed him around. And I tend to do stuff like that. I hit the road as much as possible. Coronavirus mm-hmm. put a stop to that for a while, but I've yeah. been back on the road. I was in Iowa a few weeks ago, covering Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. who is a potential 2024 presidential candidate, and things have gotten started that early, so mm-hmm. it may sound weird, but they're already parading through Iowa like the election in six months. I believe it. Um, and, and that's what I tend to do. I still like to cover the congressional committees, mm-hmm. something you're very familiar with. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get as much coverage, I feel like, as they used to. Uh, but I still really enjoy it. And they're all aspects of campaigns, political trends, polling. So all of that stuff is what I focus on. And that's kind of what keeps me busy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just finished my first book. Uh, Maybe my last book. Who knows? (laughs) I doubt it. If my wife has her way, it may be my last book. Well, it is. I know that it's a big time. She may forgive me. (laughs) 
But the book, um, the book itself is really about political trends and what 2024 could look like. Is that right? Correct. It's mm-hmm. yeah, the, t- the, the title of the book is In Trump's Shadow, mm-hmm. um, and it publishes October 19th. Okay. It, it's published by 12, and um, what I try and do is explore – what I try and do is write a forward-looking book that explores – uh, Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party through the prism of what the 2024 primary could look like. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's really a deep dive into him from a political perspective. Mm-hmm. There are so many amazing books coming out about his presidency and the 2020 campaign and what he said and what he did. Yeah. And it's the kind of stuff I do love to read. My book is different. It's different on purpose. I'm trying, I tried to sort of, I tried to mine the politics of Trump mm-hmm. as Trump sees the politics of Trump. Interesting. And I tried to talk to all of the sort of big players in the Republican Party besides him about his impact on the party and what the next presidential primary could look like. And so I, I do a deep dive into certain candidates. I talk about some other potential candidates Mm -hmm. and I just talk about how the party is different and why. And so I'm hoping people will like it. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to read it. I only just finished the content aspect of it recently. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, we're about to start talking about how we sell the book, but in Trump's shadow, um, it comes awesome. out October 19th and I hope people like it. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to do whatever I can to, to help, uh, put out the good word for it. Cause I do think that that's, you know, it's really, um, it's something that I think really is unknown. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how you've uncovered, um, you know, what you think will happen because it's just a factor that is, is different. Um, and one that really doesn't apply to any other cycle that we've been through before uh, because he was such a force and really had such a tremendous impact on, on all, all things. Um, so I think that that will be very, very good to, um, to take a look at and to, to keep in mind as we move forward. I think you're right. Many of the books that we're hearing about now really look back and, and dissect sort of things that were known and were not known. Whereas this is more of a look ahead. And I think that that's, what's always most intriguing to me is what kind of impact will this have um, in the future going forward? So that's so cool. Well, and good luck with the book. How was that? Uh, did you report? Were you also, were you writing for the, for the examiner at the time while you were doing the book or did you take some yes. time to write it? Oh, you were. I didn't get any book leave. Mm-hmm. And so I would get up at about 4am um, write until about eight thirty in the morning, then shift to my day job, and I would I would write weekends. Now I spent a good six months doing as much reporting as I needed to to get the book off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so the first six months of the book were just me, whether getting up early or staying up late or working weekends, um, interviewing. Now my original plan, Lisa, was to travel. Uh, talk to people in person, go to party events, whether a Republican Governors Association event or, you know, the 2020 Republican Convention, mm-hmm. all the different kinds of events uh, that people in our business go to where I could talk to people firsthand. And that is not only a good way to get people to open up, to talk to them in person, but you're able to observe 
um, what goes on. And there are some of these events that we cover that, you know, where voters go and activists go and right. people living and working in these communities. And I was going to take all of this in, mm. figured I'd get a bunch of intel from people gossiping. Then, you know, it's up to me to decide which gossip is true and which which isn't. But mm-hmm. that's how information flows. Absolutely. And the coronavirus shut everything down. <laughs> Corona ruined everything. There, there <laughs> no were question. no events. Right. Certainly no in-person events. No. And so I remember about three weeks into the first lockdown, uh, my wife actually said, if I were you, I'd get on Zoom and just start talking to people because this isn't going away. Because I was yeah. kind of like holding out hope that it would be temporary. How insightful, though. And she, she was, was right. Yeah, she was right. So mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of this that way. Mm. And look, it produced enough and it, it did well enough. Um, I started writing in September, then January 6th happened, and I decided that I needed to take that into account. Absolutely. Um, But then as we started to come out of the coronavirus pandemic, as we were leaving the winter behind, Mm -hmm. some things started to open up. And so I was able to do a little bit of reporting before I had to get back to my final writing push right so um i spent a couple of hours with donald trump at mar-a-lago um i attended a couple of events here and there Mm -hmm. and was able to end up i think with a book that takes into account some of the important moments and dates over the past four or five years and explored them mm-hmm. without getting caught up in these things for their own sake. Right. Um, and again, I, I, stro- I was striving to do this because I was trying to write something that was forward looking mm-hmm. uh, versus backward looking. Yeah. And backward looking is important because Absolutely. that's history. Yes. So I'm very, look, I'm a big fan of all the other books out there mm-hmm. that are some out, some that are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was trying to remember what my mission was. Yeah. Um, and so it was about, about a, I mean, from the time that I started reporting until the time I was finally finished, it was about a little over a year. Wow. That's fast. It seems really and fast. And I was just, so glad that I didn't have to get up at 4 a.m. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, was right. glad that I could at least have my weekends back no once doubt. in a while. No doubt. Um, then we went into the copy editing phase, and these are all the things I've learned. So then I had to start fact checks, mm-hmm. and copy edits, and then more copy edits, and more fact checks. Um, and we finally just passed the window. Uh, I finally passed the content window this past Monday. That's great. Monday close of business, and that was it. So whatever mistakes that I didn't catch, which kind of keep me up at night, but I imagine there's at least something in there. <laughs> it, I'm stuck with it. Well, and the good the good news is that there's always there's always opportunities to you know to point to those and say you know since the book even was you know fact checked and put to bed, things have changed. Um, but that's so great, and that is that really seems fast to me. Twelve months to write a book, plus reporting, plus living through a pandemic, plus raising two humans, uh, keeping a marriage happy—all those important things that were going on during that time too. It's like um, congratulations. I mean, that's a great positive silver lining in all this too. Thank you. Um, 
uh, yeah. I mean, that that's kind of was like, I mean, first world problems as far as I'm uh, concerned. Well, but, no uh, question about it. But still, but, I mean, uh, I think that, that that's the way that a lot of people have come through um, this long haul, too, is that we've, you know, looked for opportunities and things that we can do. I mean, it's part of the reason why I started this podcast in the first place was like, I missed checking in with people like you to say like, hey, what's going on? How is it? How, you yeah. know, how's, how are things? And so I put this little project together and that's how this all happened. And now here we are. I'm almost... 25 or 30 episodes deep and I'm doing a little partnership with PR daily, which has um, been really good because it's helped get some legs for, uh, for the audience. So other folks are listening in, which is terrific, but also gives people a sense of sort of how reporters um, got through this time too, because so much of what you do, like you mentioned is in person. Um, and is it right in front of people and how else do you get those stories if you're not near them and around them? But how, um, so, you know, book aside, obviously you've been doing a lot of writing and you've been super busy with that. What kinds of things, um, how the family's good, the boys are in school, everybody's doing well. Um, everybody's great. That's you know, fantastic. The, the boys were back on campus full time as of April 5th. Awesome. And they had been hybrid before that. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd never been so happy in my life to pay all that money to private school. But it worked <laughs> out for, for that reason. Yeah. The kids are this year in summer camps where they couldn't do it last year. Yep. Mine too. Um, same, same. And uh, yeah, so everything, everything's really good. Now I'm just trying to sort of, um, sort of shift into uh, book promotion yep. and, um, and that's um, a whole nother My thing. wife will be very helpful in that regard, because she's very social and um, she, she'll be good at that. I'm going to have to make myself good at that because <laughs> well, writing just, I like. It's another promotion. gear. It's a totally oh, different gear. Luckily, you have a yeah. partner. You have a partner that that is in that side of the business and understands how that all of those machinations work. So I I, I expect that that's going to be um, it's going to be a lot of fun, and you'll figure all that out. What kinds of things, though, you know, on the weekends, when, now that you're back to your weekends, what are you, like, most looking forward to? You getting, getting to baseball games? What are you guys up to on the weekends? Uh, I mean, it's a normal life, right? I mean, we've mm-hmm. got to run errands. You know, like, <laughs> yep. the only time I can get to the dry cleaners is so on the So glamorous. <laughs> um, yep. You know, we like to get outside and, and either walk or bike ride, get something to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, it's it's not. I mean, we've we've taken some trips. Oh, good. And we like to get out of DC mm-hmm. because this weather's awful, and you should never be here with this weather. <laughs> no, nope. It's we, terrible. It's always right, hot. Which is why? Yep. Which is why canceling August recess is a horrible idea because members of Congress just get angry. They don't actually double down and get anything done. No, I um, agree. <laughs> but. Look at the, you know, it's like I try to explain this to some family members. Some get it, some don't. I try to explain this to some family members who think that we all live in this bubble. And, and politically we do, but they, you know, they think we're a bunch of aliens. Mm-hmm. And what I say to them is we do exactly what you do on the weekends. We go to the dry cleaners, we go to the grocery store, we try and have a little fun, we mm-hmm. clean up the house. Totally. <laughs> Totally. You know, my wife and I try and go out and have a drink together. And mm-hmm. like, you know, that's it. I mean, that's what we do. That's if, right. You know, my kid, my oldest plays 
golf. Sometimes the boys play baseball. Mm-hmm. So we go to the games. I, I mean, it's it's a pretty normal life. And I, it's, it's amazing and that's a to good me. Thing. I think so. It's, I, well, I think it keeps us all very grounded. And I've, I know I've told this story before, but I, what I love so much about DC and the way we sort of do this is that we do run into each other, uh, you know, at baseball games. We see each other at, uh, at class trips. I remember being on one with a couple of friends that were writers. And, you know, I'm on the PR side. And, and we all sort of joked, like, maybe we should just call this a meeting <laughs> because we were, you know, at the class trip. But we were all interacting, yeah. you know, somebody from the New York Times and Lisa from the PR firm and this guy from Politico. And, you know, this is a town where we also we do we do live and enjoy and, and work very hard. But we also have very normal weekends where we have to do all those other great things too. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I've actually ever been to a real cocktail party mm. where we're not we on purpose anyway, get, where we all <laughs> supposedly get together to conspire against the country. I mean, look, some people have all sorts of weird points of view in this town. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine it. It's very annoying to voters when the wrong people have power and they don't like the policies that they promulgate. But I don't actually think I've ever conspired with anybody at a cocktail party because most of the time we're at the same kind of restaurant or or, uh, drinking establishment that you will find anywhere else in the country. And there's really no conspiring. There's just Mm -hmm. a lot of Mm -hmm. (laughs) imbibing. Well, how else will we make the uh, the bad memories of the day go away? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yes, no question about it. Tell me, though, Dave, I'm getting to the end of our time together, and I'm curious to know, as I sort of build my list of future guests, is there someone that you think I ought to check in with for a future episode? Yeah, you should think about talking to Al Weaver, who runs um, with a co-writer, The Morning Report, which is the Hills uh, morning newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, he is late 20s, early 30s. We're, okay. yeah, I mean, we're friends, mm-hmm. so I should remember his exact age, but uh, <laughs> Doesn't sharp even reporter, matter. <laughs> good analyst. Great. Uh, has spent a lot of time on the campaign trail, has spent, spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill. Um, he's really smart and, uh, I think he'd be a good interview. Awesome. Well, I'll tell him that you recommended him. That's certainly been really helpful for getting guests, <laughs> being able to say that they've been recommended by another and that someone like you has done the show gives it some validation too. So, well, Dave Drucker, thank you so much for being with me today. It is always such a pleasure to catch up. Anytime, Lisa. Thank you. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. 
You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.